Analytics with Mike Lewis, the podcast where we talk about everything you need to know about sports analytics. Here's your host, Mike Lewis, marketing professor at Emory University. Welcome everyone to the Fanalytics Podcast with Mike Lewis, and today I'm joined by uh, my most frequent guest, uh, economist Tom Smith. Welcome, Tom. Thank you, Mike. Nice to be here. So, Tom, what I want to talk about today is I'm looking to be educated. So okay. hopefully this one is not too much of a, a mess. Okay. So, well, and, and you know what? I, I honestly don't know the answer to this. What, is the women's FIFA tournament, is this the biggest thing that's happening in sports right now? It's that's a, actually an interesting question. It's a little bit complicated because if you look at the numbers with respect to TV viewership, um, the TV viewership of the of the Women's World Cup um, is really small relative to the Men's World Cup. So if you're saying, "Hey, this is a big tournament," clearly it is a big tournament. Everybody is talking about it. But I think in different well, countries, you probably have different people talking about let's, different sporting events. Let's start with a fact. Yeah. And um, like I said, this this may be a this may be a very unstructured, wandering conversation because, like I said, I this tournament is something that I find absolutely fascinating. And yeah. and at some point, I'll talk about why I find it fascinating from a marketing perspective. Mm-hmm. Actually, I also find it fascinating from a political perspective. But the number I wanted to throw out there, since you mentioned TV ratings, so th- this tournament is setting all sorts of ratings this summer. But quick piece of Googling research says that the, well, so the, the there was a game between Brazil and Italy that generated about 35 million viewers. This seems to be the biggest soccer, the biggest women's match of all time in terms of TV. The finals between um, France and... Um, Sorry, who was it in the men's last year? Uh, France and... Um, it wasn't Argentina, was it? <laughs> God, feel, we're, oh we're, we're, we're screwing, gonna, somebody's gonna, we're screwing somebody's up the soccer. Somebody's going to send us some hate mail. But, but you know, playing playing in uh, last year's tournament generated 500 million households watching it. Yeah. So last year, the men's uh, tournament, the number I have here touched 3.5 billion households across the globe. Yeah. So, so when I said, you know, a couple of minutes ago, you said, is this the biggest thing in, in sports? It's if you are trying to compare the number of people who are watching this or the number of people who are engaged in the Women's World Cup relative to the Men's World Cup, it is a fraction, 10%. I mean, okay. it's just, it's, it's really small relative to what the men draw. That 10% is an, inter- is an interesting number because I think in terms of the data that I've been able to pull, and I, and I think it's difficult to actually pull information that tells you exactly what's going on. Yes. 10% seems to be about the, the most consistent ratio in terms of what's happening on the men's side versus on the women's side. Yes. No, it's, that's, that's what I've been able to identify as well. You know, prior to us doing the podcast, and we were talking very briefly, and um, so I wrote an article about the wage differential between the men, men's team and the women's team um, the last time that they played. And it was published in Time and a number of other places. Can, and, I, can uh, I interrupt you just no, for a second? No, please, please. Okay. And so this is one of the places where I'm fascinated by this tournament because we, we knew that this was going to be a story this time around as well. Sure. This has become maybe the lazy journalist angle on the story. Okay. That it very quickly goes to the the pay differential and this thing becomes kind of a, 
a political hot potato in, in some ways. But, you know, even going into this, we knew that that was going to be one of the key elements of the of the narrative right. of this. And so uh, let's get to the sort of the hardcore recon in this in just a second. But one of the things that I think is fascinating about this is that the women's tournament and, you know, we, we may let's just go in this together that some people might be upset by some of the content today. Okay. The women's tournament, I think, is very much driven by narratives. Okay. By kind of these storytelling aspects of, you know, meet Megan Rapino. There's this lawsuit versus, let's say, more of a competitive-driven sport. And, and look, I, and I think this is something. This is something I talk about increasingly frequently, like the difference between some sports being more geared towards the competitive aspect, sure. and some sports being geared more towards the storytelling aspect. I'm gonna think of a couple examples, and you tell me if this is what you're talking about, right? And so, um, when we're talking about going to the World Series. Right. And so it's Cubs versus Cleveland. I mean, there's not a whole lot about what's driving uh, Anthony Rizzo or how Chris Bryant is feeling or how somebody on, on the Cleveland Indians is, you know, what they've had to overcome to get there. It's really about here's a team, here's a city, here's Chicago, here's a team, here's a city, here's Cleveland. And it's really about the matchup. But this is different than if you're talking about, let's say, in a boxing match. Right. Well, and where they're talking about, OK, this guy, he, you know, threw a drink at this guy during the weigh in and this happened and they tore the shirt off of the manager and someone got pushed down a set of stairs. And well, there's a different kind of narrative. Is that what you're talking about? I tend to think. Right. And, and I'll say that I think there's a continuum here. Mm -hmm. And I think you're right, though, that when we, you know, in baseball, the World Series, the Super Bowl, you got allegedly most of the time the two best teams playing. And then the stories sort of come in secondary to that. Right. Okay. Versus in the Olympics, so much of this is built around telling us why we should be rooting for this person, you know, competing in the short track cycling event that we will immediately forget about. Right. Uh, you know, the day right. after the Olympics. And, 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 and that's where, I mean, event after event, right? Oh, this is a weightlifter. Now we've got to get the backstory and what's been overcome. Right. Cycling, right. swimming, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Okay. And, I, and I think I think that um, you see this, and I, and I think that the networks understand this because oh, they, don't do, they don't do like a, like a very introspective on a, on a person when you're talking about um, the broadcast for the World Series maybe a little bit for the Super Bowl for a particular player. But in the Olympics, like every other minute talks about, okay, they got to get up at 4.30 in the morning and drive through snow to get to the rink. And then they do two, does six hours of workouts. And then he goes and works out at Walgreens or Home Depot or something, right? I mean, and right. That, so those, all those stories are the personal interest stories that then compel us yeah. to root for a player and maybe you know some of, you know some of it is some of it is based on just the nature of the fan bases that support these sports sure. right like for the for the women's fifa tournament it's like the the fan base has to be reformulated regrown every four years because then it disappears after the sure tournament. yeah because the, right. the national team is not it's not like they're playing the national team is uh, constantly switching out players, right? People are coming in, people are coming out. The national team, it, it convenes over the course of a couple of years to play 
to play matches to qualify for the mm-hmm. tournament. But it's not like the national team is playing every two weeks where you could just right. go out and see them play or they're not playing in a regular setting. This is a, this is a formation of these athletes who um, are put together specifically to participate in these type of tournaments. Exactly. Right. Okay, so let's, um, let's get back to, and I just want to put that out there, sort of my opinion about the backdrop of what's going on nice. here. So, nice. so what was the message of your article and how much of it is still true today, four years later? Mm, I think it's um, I think it's virtually entirely true. I looked at the earnings ratio of um, of male versus female um, athletes relative to some sports. So this is okay. so I looked at um, U.S. athletes. Um, yeah, mm, yes, mostly, primarily, right? Well, but not well, but not entirely. So let me ex- well, let me explain. But in terms of like, let's say soccer. Right. And, and this is where I get confused in terms of the limited data that is available. It sounds like, you know, the, the U.S. Soccer Federation is a big part of the total earning, you know, the, the total earnings in particular of the female soccer athletes. Right? right. And so it's there are national boundaries in terms of how some some folks compensation work. Right. Okay? Right. So the so the article looked at sort of the earnings differentials and ratios. So when you look at let's say um, NBA players, and then you look at WNBA players. So NBA players are making twenty five to thirty times what your average WNBA player is making. I'm right? surprised the number is not actually larger than that. Right, but it has a lot to do with how it is that these teams make money, and this gets into more of the economics. Most people probably have only heard of this just just. Uh, sort of ancillarily, but most of these teams don't make money from ticket sales. That is, that's not their primary revenue generating uh, element to their to their franchises. They make money through broadcasting, local broadcasting, and national broadcasting. And so, in the broadcasting deal for the WNBA is really small relative to the national broadcasting deal for the NBA. And okay. so, so wages too small. No, I think it makes a lot of sense relative to how many people are watching the game and okay. the, and the, how long the season is. And you know, I mean, we're in we're in the middle of. Would well, the WNBA have a broadcasting deal if they were not affiliated with the NBA? Um, maybe. I mean, given the fact that given the fact that you know, there's broadcasting. We're broadcasting all types of sports. You know, I mean, you can. Yeah. I mean, you can watch the. You know the. Uh, Irish, uh, you know, pole throwers on ESPN two at the, like three I, o'clock I in think the morning. Are you ta- referring right. to the caber tossing? Yeah, I, I am. Okay. I am. <laughs> Thank you. That's right. accurate. That's okay. That's right. <laughs> so, um, so I think that they would probably have a broadcasting deal. I mean, people watch all types of sports on television, but they wouldn't have the same kind of broadcasting deal that they have, given the fact that they're affiliated with the NBA, right? And so. Right. When you look at when you look at these sports, so the women players earn a very small ratio relative to the men's players for the uh, for the for the NBA. I think we were just talking about it, and I'm I'm not going to be accurate here, but I want to say that the numbers are something like the women's players are in the twenty twenty some percentile of the WNBA revenue model, whereas the NBA players are fifty some percent. So sound about right. That's right. So there's a so the collective bargaining agreement for the NBA is that they've got it. That players have to be paid fifty percent of what's called basketball related income, BRI. Yeah. But I think it's a little high, like fifty five. I'm not sure what, but I think it's above fifty. 
Um, okay. Yeah, I'm actually just I can I can yeah. show you the statistics on yeah. this. I can throw it to you later this afternoon if you'd like. So yeah, I've I've run all those numbers, okay. and so they're yeah it's it's between fifty and fifty five percent, and so in the in the sports where you've got equality across earnings, um, this is the um, tennis. So okay. uh, Wimbledon, U.S. Open, um, French Open. These these all have purses that are exactly that the same. The, I'm gonna keep interrupting you. That's no, fine today, Tom. Is that the only sport where there's equality? Um, the PGA is close, but not 100% equal. So yeah, I mean it's, but but this is, but you, it's a little bit. So one specific golf tournament, the PGA. Different golf tournaments have, let's say, a, like there's a women's uh, mm-hmm. open and there's a men's open, and the women's open pays a fraction of what the men's open okay. pays. Um, for the other tournaments that we mentioned, Wimbledon, there's a men's side and there's a women's side. But the women are paid this exact same, same. amount as the men in okay. those purses. So the champion of Wimbledon for the women's side and the men's singles champion get paid the exact same amount. Okay. So there's so there is some equality, right? It's it's but but when people are talking about, I mean, I saw some tweets this well, last you week. You know, let me let me push back yeah. on you and see, okay. and and you tell me if this is how the pushback you got before. You know, you're talking about specific tournaments that are played together, right. so they're completely intertwined. Yes. Is one of the pushbacks that, in fact, the women's tournaments, the women's tennis tournaments are being subsidized by sort of playing together with the men? So at various times, there's actually a little bit of, there have been, has been a little bit of push the other direction. And that is, there are some women athletes that are incredibly compelling to watch. And I mean, it's just, and so they drive ratings just as much as the, as the, as some of the men's matches. So when you've got Serena in the finals, what have you, then, I mean, those, those, uh, those viewerships, you know, they, they go through the roof. Sure. And, and so there is, you could argue that since there's, there are, there's lots of interest in some very specific athletes on the in tennis side that let's say a Serena match might sort of uh, be, be covering the expenses of you know a second mm-hmm. tier or third tier men's match and then then you have Nadal or somebody else playing in the finals that's that's going to be a very compelling match to watch as well well but here's the question and I think you I think you tap danced away from it what I, I think you did um, what if the women's tournament was separate from the men's tournament mm, interesting okay so women's Wimbledon is played in you know, June, and men's Wimbledon is played in August. Right. All the tournaments are separate. Would that parity last? Hmm, it's interesting. I it might now that the now that there is parity, right? It would be right. very very difficult to move away. You have to also remember that in tennis, I mean, women have had had a, a very very strong advocate in Billie Jean King and other other female athletes who have promoted the idea of equality in wages. Well, and this and is so, what's interesting to me is like how much of this is and look, stuff doesn't happen in isol- in isolation. No, of course. The amount of politics that comes into sports and you know, we we can go pretty far down the rabbit hole in terms of the discussion in terms of why inequities exist or why disparities exist, maybe a better word. Mm-hmm. Um a more neutral word. Um so yeah, Billie Jean King, you know, has been advocating, and I don't know if she's the original, but you know, in terms of my historical memory, sure. she gets credit for being the one pushing the issue. You know, because and I think you know this gets us to, and we'll, we we got to get to soccer at some point in this conversation. Sure, of course. 
you know, these athletes play in these tournaments where these tournaments are the brands. Right. Wimbledon is the brand. The Australian Open is the brand. Sure. And so then the equity, you know, transfers from these tournaments to the athletes, and the athletes become the ones with the drawing power. And I, I think it's always a fascinating question as to how real is all that. And, and you know, I've totally changed directions. So, you know, take an example of the NBA, right. whereas, you know, LeBron James is a the bigger star than probably any team in the league if you go by something like, you know, Twitter followers. Or sure. Steph Curry as, a, you know, player for the, for the, for the Warriors. You know, if, if you do a thought experiment and those folks leave... Right. And they form their own league. Do the fans follow or do the fans stay with the NBA? No, I don't think the fans I don't think the fans leave, right? I think we had we had a mini experiment when Jordan left um the, you know, the three Pete Bulls mm -hmm. of ninety one, ninety two, ninety three, went to go play baseball and there were a ton of people who went out to go watch the Birmingham Barons yeah. and um, when he was playing. How many baseball. times, right? Well, I mean, right. I mean, it's you know, I mean, it's amazing to see Michael Jordan up close, and so you couldn't get tickets to go to a Bulls game, so maybe go see him play some baseball. But that lasted maybe three months, mm -hmm. right? Maybe, and you know, and, and it and it certainly was one of those situations where um, it was such a quirky phenomenon, and the Bulls lost some of their viewership. The Bulls lost some of their season ticket holders because people didn't want to watch the Bulls without without Jordan. So you have you have players who rely well, on the league you know for what? being I'm gonna I'm gonna push back on you. Let's make this contentious today. Okay. Um Michael Jordan is the worst example you can throw out in terms of any of this stuff. Uh -oh. Because he is one of the true one of the very, very few people, one of the few athletes that actually grows the pie, I think. Okay. That in terms of the NBA, he and maybe LeBron is in that same case, where he, you know, the Jordan brand adds something to the NBA. And so it's almost like you got to take out that ultra elite, like cultural figure. No, I, you're probably right. I mean, I'm looking at, I'm looking at a, a point on the, on the map that is like way far away from just about everybody else. Except the for the outlier of all outliers. Right? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, you're, you're right. It's, it's hard to make a case for using the outlier. So that's right. So, if, so if let's, let's suppose that Steph Curry and Steph Curry and LeBron all of a sudden join some kind of another tournament, right? Dodgeball. Is everybody <laughs> going to, is everybody going to go um, watch them play dodgeball? I don't think so. Yeah. Well, and I don't think so. I mean, people they, watch these guys play like pro am golf. I mean, Steph Curry has like a new like show about miniature golfing. Yeah. Did anybody watch that show? If, <laughs> if they went and they joined the and one league, right? Right. Would, would the fans shift? And I, that's that's no, a tough experiment, so. right? Yeah, I don't think they would completely. Okay. So let's get to the matter at hand. So what do you think about the? And like I said, you know, this is a big part of the narrative: the fight for equal pay. What do you think about the? And my understanding is that it's going to go to arbitration following the uh, the tournament. Mm. Um, what do you think about the case that the women on the national team are making? Well, so they're making uh, considerably less than the than the men. Um, you know, uh, four years ago when I was when I was hearing all of this, um, FIFA came down and said, "Look, the women haven't been around long enough. That's why they aren't being paid." They're making and less than which men? The American men? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the women and the, the women's team makes less than the men's team, as far as I can tell. The women's, um, it, depending on their success in the tournament, right. they're earning less than 
the comparable men's teams would based on their success of the tournament. Okay. Right. And so there people were tweeting about this last week. They said, okay, when you get to the knockout rounds, a men's team would earn this much and so a women's me, team is making a fraction of that. Let me throw in another another yeah. fact. Um, so basically what's been reported is that the the prize money for the men's tournament last year was four hundred million dollars. Mm-hmm. $38 million to the winners. Okay. In terms of this summer's tournament, the prize money is $30 million. Okay. And $4 million to the winners. Yeah, so, so it's like 10%. Again, this 10% rule. Yeah, yeah. But So this has a lot to do with how it is that FIFA is generating those funds. So most of the funds that are being generated by FIFA to pay those come from the sale of the broadcast rights. Right. And the broadcast rights are... So FIFA collects this huge pot of money for selling broadcast rights. And when they run a tournament, they are selling broadcast rights to every country, mm-hmm. every uh, network within those countries. And, multi- and so what's happening is that they can sell the rights to these games for you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And, and they cannot sell the rights to the women's games for the same hundreds of millions of dollars. They're selling them for tens of millions of dollars. Okay. And so as a result, the the payouts, at least the way that FIFA has done it, the payouts are relative to how much money they can generate for the sale of each of these events. Now this is not speculation. If you go to the FIFA website, you can actually find their financial breakdown and you can find um, how much they're selling these packages for, at least how much money they've collected in whole for selling each of these groups. And then if you compare the payouts, they're proportional to what they're selling these for, right? So this is not, this isn't, we're not speculating here. These are, this is what we find from, okay. from looking at FIFA's own internal documents. Okay, so quick question. Actually, I got two questions sort of unrelated. One is um, sort of tracking back for a second. So the the issue of paying the men's team more than the women's team. And like, like I said, I, I'm, I'm struggling to actually find all the relevant facts. Right. What I seem to be able to find is that the payout to the women's players is less. Yes. And, and it's based on some statistic that if each team won the 20 non-tournament games they were able to play in, that the ratio would be skewed towards the men's side. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, what's, what's left out of that is, well, for one thing, I have no idea what the ticket prices of those non-tournament games are. Right. So I don't know what the revenue pool is. Yeah, we have is. no idea. The other thing is that there is then a line that's usually buried in these articles that U.S. soccer pays the women or supplements their professional soccer playing salaries by, I think, 175 k per season hmm. if they agree to, pay, to play in the U.S. pro leagues. Mm-hmm. That's the thing that kind of confuses me in terms of when you add up all this stuff together, are there, in fact, inequities in terms of, you know, if there's a 175K subsidy on top of the per game, does it end up working out to be relatively equal? Yeah, that's, it's, I mean, it's so challenging to find the, like, apples mm-hmm. to apples for men versus the women. Well, right. I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that, that it wasn't just me in terms no, no, of trying no. to figure this out. Nope. It's, I mean, trying to dis- disassemble um, the components because it's, there's, they're, they're not transparent, right? Okay. I mean, there's, there, you can find the numbers. And if you know what you're looking for, you can try to break things down. 
but it's not like FIFA or any of these other other organizations just roll out their P&L and then and then show you the notes that go along with the P&L that says okay that's where this revenue came from that's all these things this is where these expenses are and what have you I think that one of the things that I see a lot of people talk about is, you know, at this stage in the tournament, the men would have made this much. At this stage in the tournament, the women would have made this much. And then there's, they're proportionally different. And I'm seeing a lot of that right now. And so I'm going to, maybe I'm going to upset some other people in a different way. And Just I, let me upset them, Tom. Though it's, uh, well, but so my approach would be screw the. Proportionality, no, language. Uh, okay. I know. Okay. So, 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 forget the proportionality, right? So, yeah. so men, you can sell all of these, um, all the rights to their broadcast. The women, you can sell the rights to the broadcast. You're selling the the rights to the men's broadcast at ten times that for the women. So you have to pay them ten times as much. I think you need to subsidize the women's whoa, whoa, game. Whoa, whoa! Now mm-hmm. we're on. Now we've we've totally switched chairs here. Okay, so. Um... And I'm going to get back and, you know, I'm going to say some stuff to get us to this notion of competitive balance in in all this. And so if the U.S. soccer market TV rights are really, you know, that the women's team, I mean, I think we can probably agree on this. The women's team is a bigger, better brand in some ways than the men's team. In the U.S. In In the the U.S. US. And, And so shouldn't the women's team be able to harvest more of the brand equity that so the u.s women's team may play a unique role in terms of this sport in terms of being kind of the big dog even globally and i you know i'm just speculating on all this that they're driving a lot of a lot of tv ratings and revenues across the world now i know i'm not quite right because Brazil versus Italy seem to set records that just dwarfed the U.S. So but, I looked at this. So I looked at this for okay. the last women's tournament, and I looked at Canadian. The, uh, so when Canada was playing, I want to say New Zealand, right? And so, and I looked at the men's versus the women's for Canadian the same teams. Ra- yeah, Canadian okay. teams for the same round, and the men drew anywhere from 10 to 20 times okay. the amount of of viewership in Canada okay. relative to the women. So there so yes, last time and the women keep breaking records in terms of football yeah. matches in the US. So the women's team gets a ton more viewers than the men's team. Globally, if it's the, men's the other team, way around by a ton. Okay, so literally everywhere else except for everywhere the else, and it's and you have to. I mean, trying to trying to match up, you know, well, game to game to game to game. So you need to, your same team, women's versus men, in the same round in, of the tournament. But well, everywhere else, okay, the, well, the, the, the it just it's not equal. Okay. So this is an interesting point because even in the U.S., if the men's team reached, so let's say that the women's team. They drew, I think the number was about six million for the quarterfinal against France. Right. If the it's men a great were... game, by the way. It was. Okay. I watched that game. It was a terrific game. If the men were playing in a quarterfinal, would they draw? I, I actually suspect. And I'm not a soccer guy. I actually suspect that they would dwarf that number as well. That if the U.S. men got on a run and they were competitive globally. That this would be an enormous story, and there might be five times as many people watching that event. Maybe, maybe, right? Yeah, it's it's. I mean, we have a hard time <laughs> yeah, no. measuring that, right? Because yeah. uh, the U.S. men's team doesn't get too far out of the pool, right? Okay. 
But so. but back to this. But the women's team might argue in terms of pay equity. It's like, look, we we're driving this. Yeah, we they we are. make it to the quarterfinals. We make it to the finals. We win this tournament half the time that it happens. Yeah. Okay. So uh, so I would argue that the women should be paid the same okay, or okay. more in the United but States. Th- so this is what I want to. I want to stop you for just for a second. Should FIFA send more money to the U.S.? Ooh, and interesting. I, and I don't know, you know, so so let's let's assume that with the subsidization of the, you know, that, that this is a little bit murkier and maybe the inequities aren't as bad as they seem if you add up everything. And again, I could be, I could be wrong. Um, but it's hard without full transparency on these numbers. Should, though, FIFA... And I'm assuming things aren't balanced. I assume USA soccer gets more money than Thailand soccer on the, in terms of the women's tournament. But should it be even more skewed towards the big dogs? So let me so let me let me throw a wrench in this, right? And so what I wrote four years ago is that when you look at viewership, FIFA should be sp- spending sending all their money to Brazil. Okay, okay, time out. Okay, and, and again, I'm, I'm going to cut them off here. Viewership, so what is a viewer worth in the USA right. versus a viewer worth in Brazil? I don't, I mean, I, it's hard for me to know those numbers, but I mean, my guess is that I mean, this is your area of, of expertise. But, the tr- I mean, the truth is that there are, there are three or four countries that just... Um, that just dominate in terms of like the like the fancy of their fans, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you are looking at who's actually watching these World Cup games on the men's side, right? Yeah. It's Brazil, Argentina. Okay, I mean, there's Italy and France, and they've they've been successful, but their viewerships in in Italy and France. Um, are minuscule relative to mm-hmm. what you're seeing in Argentina and Brazil. And so what happens is that if FIFA wants, if you're trying to compensate the teams that are driving the narrative, that are that are fueling the reason for you watching the tournament, then FIFA should just be writing a big check to Brazil and Argentina every single year. Oh, and, so, so Tom, what yeah. you're implying, and again, just to to make this even more confusing, is that the NCAA tournament, their TV package should be paying disproportionate amounts to Kentucky and Duke. Probably, yeah. And the NCAA tournaments with respect, well, not really a tournament because the games are one-off games. And so the Major League Baseball um, TV yeah, deal should pay more to the Yankees, the Cubs, and the Dodgers? Probably. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's not the way that the collective bargaining agreement works, but... So, so Tom, what you're really advocating for is a complete destruction. Tom has no interest in this notion of competitive balance, right? Yes, that's right. That's right. That's right. Unless you read my book, okay. then you find that I'm very interested in competitive balance. Well, well but, but so is that one of the issues that is sort of being swept under the rug in terms of the lawsuit against U.S. soccer? Right? Is a lot of what's happening on a worldwide basis trying to funnel money? So that you don't exacerbate the, and it's a kind of interesting. So you don't increase the the impact of the inequities, but now it's a difference between the men's game versus the women's game. Now it's the women's game in the U.S. versus the women's game in Thailand. And I'll just say that, given that you know the thirteen nothing, uh, you know beatdown that was delivered. Yeah. So so the question. Um, so should we be concerned about how much the women's women uh, athletes are being paid in Thailand. I mean, I think we should, 
But I mean, if we're looking at women's soccer relative to men's soccer, then we say, okay, I think that women's, I think FIFA should forget the formulas that they're currently using and say, this is how much money we, we generate from, from okay. the sale of and, this. And, and, and again, then, part of the confusion and, here is we've got FIFA one level, and then yeah. we've got USA Soccer That's with true. another formula. That's true. That's true. Right. So if, I think the, the, so the FIFA formula says we, we draw you know 10 times as much for, the, for selling the men's games. We should, we should pay them 10 times as much. Um, and so I think they should throw those formulas out the window and they should just have a pool and say, okay, if you're playing in one of our tournaments, this is what you get for the for the initial knockout for the initial rounds. This is how much you get for making knockout round mm-hmm. number one, number two, number three, and the final and whatever else. And so take all of the money and split it between. Well, you've got 32 teams on the men's side and 24 teams on the women's side, and so you've got you know 56 teams. So you just split that so that. Whatever team meets, makes each level of the of the rounds gets the same amount. I mean, and who's I mean, who's okay, going to be upset about that? Like, who okay, would be? Well, I'm going to be upset about that because I'm I'm a big fan of the Thailand women's soccer team, and you're describing a revenue model that means that we are never going to be competitive. That who's never going to be competitive? The the Thai women's team. Oh. No, they would because they would be making they would be making as much as let's say the men's national team for making it into the tournament. That's what their that's what their initial pay would be. Okay, but I think you're telling me that you're going to give a massive check to to the U.S. women's soccer program right. that's going to dwarf the check that we get. So now you're telling me as Thailand, and again, I don't want to pick on Thailand, but you're you're telling me that we've got a minuscule population. Our investment in this sport is microscopic compared to the U.S., and now this international soccer tournament is again going to reward reward the dominant forces. It's going to be self-reinforcing. So one of the interesting things that you can find in FIFA's in FIFA's financials, as 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 um, opaque as they are, is that FIFA does spend a considerable amount of money trying to. Um, create um, soccer programs in you know parts of the world that don't have the kind of uh, uh, resources that would allow them to get people involved in the sport. I've got a number for that. Oh. So there's been some discussion that uh, FIFA is going to invest five hundred million dollars into the women's game globally. Yeah, they should. Okay. I mean, they should. They should probably spend twice as twice that. Okay, and so let's switch directions here. Just twice that. Why not three times? That's Why my... not? I mean, you know, and so here's the thing, yeah. and, and partly I'm, I mean, partly I'm just trying to be argumentative, yeah. but but the yeah. other part is that, um, you know, the role of this, we have to, I mean, we can step back just one, just a little bit, and say, remember that FIFA is run allegedly by a bunch of really corrupt individuals, and when I say allegedly, it's because I don't know what's happening with all the different court cases on all mm-hmm. of these different graft. And uh, you know payola situations, but a lot of people have been indicted for fraud, manipulation, all types of graft, payola, what have you. And so um, I don't know where everybody is in terms of being found guilty or innocent on those accusations, but they've been accused of a yeah, ton no, obviously of, a ton of like uh, folks forced out, human rights abuses. Yeah, it's like um, you know, FIFA corruption scandals are. You know, a big part of that HBO show with Brian Gumbel's 
content, it seems like a lot of times, you know, one scandal after another, they sure. continually cover. Sure. So again, again, it's, I'm not saying that everybody's guilt, everybody is guilty, but there seems to be a lot of, a lot of corruption in that organization. Okay. And so if you've got a corrupt organization and, and you say, well, they're allocating resources based on how they're generating revenue. Well, I mean, screw that. I mean, it's just, you. I mean, at some point you have to say, look, the way you've done it and it allows you to get extra payments on the side. So you got to like throw that model out the window okay. and just and I, gen- I feel throw, like, throw money around. I feel like Tom's veering into another kind of academic argument and then sort of like, so, so one way to look at this is that you can say, well, th- this is the world. It's this 10 to 1 ratio. This is what the market has determined. Sure. Then we can get into arguments, and I think this is a terrible set of arguments to get into. Well, and look, I understand the logic of it, that you now have to back into, well, why did the world evolve into the state that it's in? Sure. Right? Why are men's sports more popular than women's sports? Because is they it, are. It, well, is it is it something just because the male athletes are better, or is it because... You know, and I've heard this argument made at the NBA that there just hasn't been enough attention played to it. It's like, so if the women had the big national TV deals and they were all over ESPN, would they become just as popular? I, I, I find that a tough argument to really make, but it's definitely something that's going to be made. Sure. But I mean, I think this is, uh, from that part, it's all a, it's all a supply and demand um, argument at that point. And so if there was demand for the for the games then they would have a big tv deal and then you wouldn't have to be having this conversation and and so i agree with that a hundred percent and that that's sort of where i uh, that that's my point of view on this as well but let me give you one give me give you another number yeah that's kind of i don't know makes me kind of scratch my head a little bit and go well geez what is popular? Because, right. you know, in some ways, in some ways, this is an argument about branding, right? People root for brands. And so the dominant brands have been, you know, on the men's side, and people are going to continue to root for it. That um, soccer match between Brazil and Italy that generated 35 million, um, 35 million viewers in Brazil and 10 million in, in France also generated 7.3 million viewers in Italy. Right. The record before that, based on the article I read, was 200,000 viewers in a 2011 match. Yeah. So the power of marketing and all this. And, and again, I mean, you know, you're an economist, but brands are easy, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a simple concept. And so is this a if you build it, they will come situation? Mm. I'd like to think that it was. I'd like to I'd like to think that if you just if you just spent more time and resources got the right kind of branding on let's say the WNBA that that people would flock to it um, and so as it as an argument in favor of this in in Atlanta WNBA right? has been around for 20 years yeah so in Atlanta we we have a very successful uh, football team soccer team football team right so the Atlanta United and their branding, how they go about talking about the team, the talking about the arena, talking about the experience, 
people who aren't even, let's say, soccer fans are going to watch these games. And they're terrific, and they're super fun, and it's a great environment, and you can get hot dogs for like two bucks at the Mercedes-Benz. It's a really nice combination of what you've talked about. So, you know, why hasn't Major League Soccer been successful in the United States? Maybe because people don't sort of brand it appropriately, and I think they... We found a very nice, perfect storm in Atlanta. They did all the right things, and now people are going to the games. And here's here's what's crazy. I was on a flight to Washington, D.C. with their soccer team. I sat next to, like, the, the center fielder, okay? Yeah. And, uh, and, and so I was talking to them, and they got off the f- plane, and it wasn't like there was hordes of fans, you know, holding up signs or whatever else. Like, we were all at the luggage carousel, and I'm like, <laughs> I'm getting selfies with these dudes. And I'm like, wow, like, man, you guys are, like, you're the MLS team from D.C. They're like, yep. I mean, it was, I mean just like talking to and just – Most of those guys making 75 grand, right? That's right. right. But here's what's crazy. Like, that would never happen with baseball. That would never happen with basketball. Like, you're not going to get on a commercial flight with a bunch of the players from the Celtics. Like, that's just – that's not going to happen. Or the well, Wizards. I mean, come on. You know, to- and so, t- Topic for another day. I bet you that could almost happen with baseball right now. Most of those guys are – you know the, the the way that media environment is gone. That most of those guys could walk through the city without oh, being recognized. They do. They do. They walk the through NBA, our halls. They walk through our halls, and nobody recognizes the them. The NBA, you know, different animal because obviously but, six foot eleven. You know. Yeah, but but I mean the point here is that um, that in in Atlanta, I think they did have a branding push that turned uh, a huge amount mm-hmm. of people onto the sport and demand then skyrocketed right i think in other cities you don't have that same kind of push we you did see some of this with uh i want to say it's called the la galaxy and so were they able to grab um beckham right and and at the the tail end of his career and that became very very popular then when he was on the team and so it's so they were able to take an athlete and then brand the team around the athlete and then create demand that way it's in in Atlanta. They aren't they aren't pushing a particular player, a particular athlete. They're pushing the experience. They're pushing the team. They're pushing the whole idea. Let's go out. Let's root for these these guys. Let me put something out there. Then we you can react to it, and then we'll wrap this up. Okay. So I think one of the one of the challenges in all this, and this relates to women's soccer, it relates to the Atlanta United, is that and look, you're a Chicago Cubs fan based on the hat you wore today. <laughs> Sports brands are generational brands that in, you know, most of the time these things are created not, you know, this is not a consumer packaged goods industry where you can create a brand in six months or a year. This is something that is created over the course of multiple lifetimes, perhaps. I agree with that. Um, And so, yeah, the the Atlanta United has been a phenomenal story. I mean, I, I think everyone's still shocked by it. Maybe one way from, and probably where I look at this in terms of like women's sports and the WNBA is something that I think is sort of a, maybe a negative case study in terms of what I'm about to say, is that this is something that has to play out not just on a one-year scale or a 10-year scale. It's it's actually something that has to play out on the course of a 50-year scale. Mm. But wow, how do you actually, you know, how do you get a brand management philosophy that's going to look 50 years into the future in terms of, you know, where you're going to find success? Right. No, I th- I think that it's I think the fact that the women's national team is playing in tournaments every c- 
couple of years, right? That the that that the players, you know, circle on and cycle off and what have you. And you you can hear a lot about a particular player in one particular year, and then a couple of years later, that player isn't even on the team anymore. And so I think it's, well, I know, think it's really difficult to be that visionary to think about how do I push the idea of a woman's team into the into sort of our let's say our sports narrative in a it's, way i'm gonna interrupt you okay you're gonna you're gonna, you're gonna. <laughs> in a way it's almost like marvel movies isn't it mm. you got megan rapino now is the star you know and maybe not the star but because of her sort of political point of view has become the gotten the most coverage alex morgan they may be cycling off just as abby wambach cycled off and sure. hope solo was forced to to cycle off sure. But when I look at that team, I almost think that there is, you know, part of me wonders how much marketing is playing into that national team selection. I think there probably is some, yeah. right? And so, um, I mean, you'd have to be, you'd have to be uh, very myopic to only put players on that are going to just be just awesome on the field. You also have to have players that are awesome off the field, right? And when I say awesome, I mean just creating enough enough uh, vibe, enough word of mouth to get people interested in the team. Look, I bet you there's some unfairness in all of this, though, right? I mean, you take a position, let's say goalkeeper, you know, to supplant the starting goalkeeper in the national team, you can't just be a little bit better, right? You've got to be a lot better oh, to, sure. to get that opportunity. Of course, of course. And so it's what you're talking about, all these athletes are – fine-tuned right they're all they're all at the top of their game okay so tom so why don't we um and again like i said this is gonna be a tough one to yeah wrap this is gonna up. be a tough one to edit too it's uh it's... because i i don't know that we've really answered any you know this has been a long a long form discussion about questions rather than coming up with answers yeah i guess i would agree with that right so I, the way i would think about it would be you know there's a lot of kerfuffle about who's being paid and how much they're being paid right and if you look at the economics of it, it seems to make sense. You know, at least there's a proportion. I generate this much from selling the rights. I pay you that much. I generate this smaller amount. I pay you the smaller amount. But because there's because there's unequal sort of viewerships in different countries or different teams um, generate more of more of the let's say um, the discussion or they generate sort of more of the enthusiasm about mm -hmm. the sport. Could you develop a model that would pay some teams more than other teams? Sure. Could you develop a model where you're trying to, let's say, develop the sport so that you push a bunch of money towards the sport to develop athletes in those sports? Absolutely. And so the current model creates some real un, un, uh, inequalities, and there are a number of models that you could that you could put forward to correct those inequalities. But then, just like every other system of allocation, you end up with some different inequalities. So if we reward the woman's team for being such a draw, then you're going to penalize the Thailand team for not being a draw. If you pay everybody equal, then you're rewarding the Thailand team and you're, in some respects, actually... Um, penalizing the woman's team. So now you're not paying based on how popular okay. they are. Regardless of how you pay this, there's going to be some amount of inequality because you either have to pay everybody the same amount where they make it in the tournament regardless of who's viewing them, or you pay everybody in the tournaments the same amount 
based on regardless of how much revenue they actually generate. Either way, you're going to have some inequalities. Okay. And I guess that's a fair way to put at it. And, and I and I do think it's, you know, in some ways we talk similar but a little bit different languages that at the end of the day, you know, sports becomes a, you know, it's a, it's a competitive environment. But as sports is sold to the public, then suddenly we've got things like brand loyalty coming into play. Um We've got the fact that all these teams are not just competitors; they're also cooperating in terms of coming up with the the, the big picture product. Right? Very good. Yeah. The USA has got to play someone, and, and so I, I guess you know my two cents on this is that you know I think a lot of the dilemma in this world is really taking a hard look at the branding, and not just the current branding, the value of the branding, but where these brands come from, how the value has evolved, who gets credit for the evolution. You know, in some ways, Mia Hamm should probably get a check from, you know, what's happening right now in terms of making USA soccer popular. Of course, of course. And then, you know, on the other side of it, you know, that that view of looking at the big picture in terms of how league is structured, right? There's no CBA here. Um, so things have got to be sort of legislated and negotiated in different ways. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. No, I think that's a great way to think about it. Okay. As always, Tom, thanks very much, and we'll uh, talk to you again soon. Thank you very much.